Would you please open your Bibles to uh, Philippians, the book of Philippians? Philippians is on page 1,164 of the Pew Bibles. We did five sermons in Luke, uh, a little detour in Romans, and now, Lord willing, we'll do five in Philippians. Um, So Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 12 to 14, and this begins the body of the letter right after the Thanksgiving and prayer. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Hear now the word of the living God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that in possibly a time of discouragement, something that the Philippians felt, deep discouragement, that, Lord God, we would have sturdy and unshakable hope that the gospel will be advanced, that, dear Lord, nothing can thwart your design for history, Lord. That at the end of all things, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord. So I pray, Father, for us this morning that you would rejuvenate in us a deep hope. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, uh, if you remember, I mentioned the rise of the nuns. And the the fastest growing religion in America is the group of people who check the box none when asked about religious affiliation. I didn't give you the date of that. The date was 2012. And the question is, has it gotten any better since then? 2019, the Pew Research Center published another survey, and and it it reads this. It says, in U.S., in in the United States, the decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. So then what, what happened between 2012 and 2019? Was the church in America just being lazy? I don't think so. I, you know, being in Hawaii and Chicago, I saw people faithful in ministry. 
And undoubtedly, here at Beacon Light, I know Pastor John has been faithful in ministry all those years. And yet still, decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. So then my question is, what do we do after all our faithful efforts, after all the energetic ministries and fervent prayers, we still hit this brick wall. There's still this decline. There's still this frustration that the gospel is not advancing. What do we do when we feel this kind of frustration personally or collectively? Last Tuesday, I was speaking to an, in, an incoming Mid-America student at, at this cookout. Um, and he was a former missionary to Jordan. His name was Thomas. And he mentioned how after all this training, training in gospel ministry, he even got the CIA-level training so that he can maneuver clandestinely through this hostile Islam environment. Even when he spoke to, the, to Muslims, he said the place felt like a brick wall. He felt frustrated. The gospel was not advancing. Or even just last Wednesday, I was speaking to uh, a congregant, Carol Usman, and we spoke about the frustration of family members, loved ones that we know that repudiate the gospel. And no matter how much we talk with them, we try to converse with them, it just seems like it's going nowhere. We feel frustrated. And so the question is, what do we do when the gospel seems like it doesn't go anywhere? When we feel the frustration of setbacks and obstacles. This was the exact problem that the Philippians were going through. They, they struggled with the same kind of frustration. For 12 years, they supported Paul financially and prayerfully. For 12 years. And now he's here stuck in a, in a Roman prison. Awaiting trial, his possible death. So all this praying, all this financial support, and it's only gotten worse. In fact, there's increasing persecution for them on the outside. And there's division and the danger of schism on the inside. And here is Paul in prison. Things have gotten worse. So they want to know, was all our collective efforts in vain? And, and Paul writes this letter in part to respond to this kind of felt deflation. And in this passage specifically, he wants the Philippians to know that though they may throw him into the deepest dungeon... Though there may be insurmountable brick walls that stand in front of the gospel, though they give him a martyr's end, they have to be confident that God will advance the gospel. Paul wants them to feel this the unstoppable progress of the gospel in adversity. So that's his concern in this text, and that's my hope this morning, that we would believe with all our heart, that when the church seems most 
powerless, that when progress seems so impossible, we need to have the hope that God will still advance the gospel. And so we'll look at that theme in three points. Each verse will serve as a point. The first point is the unexpected advance, verse 12. The second is an evangelistic advance, verse 13. And then verse 14 is an encouraging advance. So look with me in verse 12. There it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, namely his imprisonment, what has happened to me has really, or the NIV has it there as actually, has really or actually served to advance the gospel. So this is an unexpected advance. It's surprising. It's unexpected. It's ironic. It's counterintuitive. How could an imprisonment advance the gospel? Like Paul is in prison. He's the primary herald of the gospel. Now he's stuck in one place. The leading missionary is confined. There is no missionary more loving, more wise, more active, more self-sacrificial than Paul. And now he's stuck in this prison. In the fourth quarter, you don't bench the star quarterback. This makes no sense. He's restricted by physical barriers. And on top of that, you have to consider that this imprisonment is giving Christianity a bad reputation. If Paul is the poster boy of Christianity, the poster boy, what does this imprisonment say about the whole religion? Why would I want to be part of that kind of religion? Can you imagine the bad press? Christianity, a creed for crooks. And especially in an honor and shame culture. This was very damaging to the reputation of Christ and the church. Why would I want to be part of a religion that gives me a bad reputation? That gets me in trouble with the law? In fact, what does it say about the God he worships? Why would I want to be, worship this God who blesses you with a hard life, racked with suffering? What kind of God is that? So here's Paul in prison, giving a bad reputation to Christianity. And the Philippians, who have poured money into Paul, who have agonized in prayer, and they've been doing so for years, and this is the end result. It's a colossal failure. Yet what does Paul say? He says, what has happened to me has really or actually served to advance the gospel. Paul's imprisonment led to this unexpected result. It was contrary to an anticipated outcome. He's bringing out the situational irony of his imprisonment. It's kind of like a, a fire station burning down or a pilot who's afraid of heights. There's irony here. Rather than restraining the gospel, 
This imprisonment has advanced the gospel. And why is this so unexpected? It's unexpected because we assume that progress would come when we remove obstacles. And yet here we see that God doesn't work in the absence of obstacles. He doesn't work in spite of obstacles. He works precisely in and through obstacles. What was keeping Paul back was pushing the gospel forward. The setback was setting the stage. The obstacle was the opening. The hindrance was the furtherance. God doesn't advance the good news in predictable and mechanical or linear fashion. In fact, God is in the very business of reversing our expectations. The whole gospel, if you, can, if you think about it, is really one whole unprecedented, paradoxical, counterintuitive story. Can anything good come out of this imprisonment? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Holy One washes filthy feet. The King of the universe rides in on a donkey. The Son of God is butchered. The cross, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, yet it is the power and wisdom of God. A crown comes from a crucifixion. Life comes from death. Forgiveness from a curse. Redemption from suffering. The humble will be exalted. Power is made perfect in weakness. The sorrowful will rejoice. And here we see the restraining power of chains is the, the very advancing power of the gospel. William Cowper was an 18th century hymn writer. And before he became a Christian, he struggled with deep depression and anxiety. He had frequent mental breakdowns. He, he tried three times to commit suicide. And then at the age of 32, he was admitted into the St. Albans Insane Asylum. And there is where he was saved. Um, but the astonishing thing was that even after he was saved and converted, a professing believer, a true Christian, he still struggled with depression and anxiety. He still had mental breakdowns, and he still even tried to commit suicide. And yet, from this depressed mind of William Cowper came centuries of glad encouragement. Because from his pen came the hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. He writes, 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense. When you're beset by depression or anxiety, or when the Pew Research Center publishes a survey that says decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. Or when after all our efforts, we still struggle with the same sin and there seems to be little progress. Or when after all our evangelistic efforts, it seems to yield no fruit. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. At the end of the age, we will all say with the angels, it all turned out for the advance of the gospel. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. This is an an unexpected advance. Well, then how, how was the gospel advanced? We see it in two ways. In verse 13, we see the gospel advanced among the lost, so those outside the church. It's an evangelistic advance. And then in verse 14, we see the gospel advanced among the saved. So it's inside the church. It's an encouraging advance. So look at verse 13 with me. It reads, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. When Paul says that it has become known that his imprisonment is for Christ, he's saying that it, it has become evident that the reason he's in prison is not because of some political wrongdoing or some civil crime. He's in prison precisely because of this unflinching, unflinching loyalty to this Roman crucified king named Jesus Christ. So when Paul, so then Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel because he's able to proclaim the gospel or make Christ known to people he's never been able to reach before. And really, Paul really wanted to go to Rome. This was a major destination in his mind. Let me read to you Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Paul says, After I have been to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. Or Romans chapter 15, verse 23, he says, I have longed for many years to come to you, Romans. So Paul really wanted to go to Rome. And really, this imprisonment is the way God got him there. And notice where God placed him. God didn't place Paul at the Roman tourism authority. God placed him at the very heart of the Roman Empire. He was brought to the, to the emperor's own camp, the whole imperial guard. These were Caesar's personal security force. They were like the secret service of Rome. They were battle-tested. They were loyal. And they were, in, they were tremendously influential. They would later be nicknamed the king makers, because they would garner enough influence that they would practically choose 
the next emperor. And these very same guards, these imperial guards, would have been chained to Paul. They would have been chained to Paul around the clock, 24-7, from three to six hours at a time. Quite literally then, Paul had a captive audience. It was not so much that Paul was locked in with them as they were locked in with Paul. And Paul doesn't just say that there were just two or three soldiers. He says it impacted the whole imperial guard. And at full strength, the palace guard, guard would number 9,000 men. That doesn't mean that Paul spoke to each one of them individually, but as he talked to two or three at a time, stories about Paul would have circulated around the prison. The water cooler chat would have been about this strange prisoner named Paul and this Roman crucified king named Jesus Christ. And if you actually look and just flip a page to chapter 4, verse 22, almost at the last verse of the letter, Paul says, All the saints greet you. Now look at this. Especially those of Caesar's household. Meaning, people in Caesar's very own household were being converted by Paul. And the astonishing thing is it doesn't even stop there. Paul says that Christ has become known to the imperial guard and to all the rest. All the rest. It's as if God has dropped a bomb on the playground of Rome and there's this seismic ripple effect. It started with the imperial guard and then exploded outward to all the rest in the city of Rome. Everyone in Rome is hearing about Christ. So when Paul was arrested, the greatest missionary was transported to the center of the culture, to the heart of Rome. In the eyes of Rome, Paul was captured. But in the eyes of God, Paul is infiltrating. Paul was like a Trojan horse. God was doing a bait and switch. They thought Paul was there for the defense of the gospel when the gospel was on the offense. As one, uh, as one commentator put it, he said, Rome has made a terrible mistake. We need to be convinced that Christ is unstoppable in his victorious march through the world. Paul is restrained, yes. But God cannot be restrained. No matter what obstacles stand in the way of the advance of the gospel, God will make it advance. The gospel cannot be quarantined. The word of God cannot be canceled. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, the word of God cannot be chained. All attempts to thwart his work will be reversed. All that is meant for evil will be turned for good. 
it will all turn out for the advance of the gospel. There is no government policy, no university lecture, no op-ed column, no satanic force, no persecution, no resistance, no prison wall, no armies, no martyrdom can suppress the advance of the gospel. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. God will advance the gospel. Thank you, Lord. And the astonishing thing is that he advances the gospel through us, through you and I. When Shauna and I moved to Chicago, well, we got married, and then about a month and a half, we moved to Chicago, and we carried around with ourselves this uh, small little wooden sign given to us by a friend. Um, and we had it hanging up in our apartment in Chicago. And then we moved further north to North Park, Chicago. And it's hanging up in our kitchen right above the keys. And it's a very simple sign. It says, bloom where you are planted. So that whether we're in the soil of Hawaii or Chicago or Gary, Indiana, God has called us to bloom wherever we are planted. And just like Paul, that's what he does with us, isn't it? He calls us to bloom where we're planted and to, it's as if he places you like clandestine spies in a specific location with specific people for a specific period of time, in a specific sphere of life, so that you can make the fragrance of Christ known where you're planted. So that whatever season you're in, whether it's four years in college or the 18 years you have raising a child or the 25 years at your job or the years of retirement, or whatever, see, or whatever sector of life you're in, whether in agriculture or carpentry or the steel industry or education or finance, as stay-at-home mothers, as teachers, as students, as retired, God has called us to bloom where we're planted and to make Christ known, to make him evident, whether in prison or in the pulpit. So then in verse 13, we see this first outcome was the evangelistic advance. In verse 14, we see a second outcome. It's an encouraging advance, and the gospel is, the gospel is furthered among those inside the church. So look at verse 14 with me. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment gave the church of Rome boldness and fearlessness. And again, it's ironic because what was meant to squelch the hope of the Christians in, in Rome is what gave them courage. Paul's imprisonment is meant to tell the people in Rome not to be like Paul. 
was meant to weaken the church's resolve and not empower it. The Sunday school, Gail mentioned, you know, when he was younger, he would get a whooping by his parents, and that would prevent him from doing wrong things. And, you know, when I was a, I was the youngest of four sons, so I had three older brothers, and I would see them get punished, get punished a lot for talking back or not eating their food. So then I was wise enough, and I learned quickly not to talk back and to eat whatever was placed in front of me. And the idea was that their punishment was meant to put a fear in me. It was meant to discourage me from certain behaviors. It was meant to disincentivize doing those bad things. But here, the punishment isn't putting a fear in them. The exact reverse is happening. The Roman government is punishing Paul, but the church became more confident in the Lord. So what was meant to produce cowardice was producing confidence. And notice that this didn't just happen to some brothers. This happened to most of the brothers. So rather than dampen the church, this imprisonment is causing this revival. And notice what this confidence did. It made them more bold. And it's not just boldness in general, like the boldness of a daredevil. It says it made them more bold to speak the word. So it gave them resolution in the face of danger to speak the word when it could cost them their lives. And Paul adds that it's not only boldness, but they did it, if you look at it there, another descriptor, they did it without fear. And and really, he's just saying the same thing two ways. Positively, they were increasing in boldness. Negatively, they were being emptied of fear. The point is that this imprisonment, which was meant to muzzle the church, was meant to quiet the church down, actually produced courage, astounding courage, death-defying, risk-taking, backbone courage. It had the opposite effect. It gave them unbelievable courage to speak the word. The letter to Philippi was being written um, while Emperor Nero, uh, his anti-Christian sentiment was reaching fever pitch. Uh, And about two years later from the the composition of the letter, he would begin systematically persecuting the church. And he would douse Christians in gasoline and light them on fire to illuminate his garden parties. And God used Paul chains, Paul's chains here, to prepare the Christians in Rome to endure the persecution that would occur to them just years later. In other words, the suffering of Christians meant to discourage us is actually what gives us the most courage. Suffering of God's people meant to discourage the church is precisely what gives the church great courage. When I attended Moody Bible Institute, uh, we would have chapel in the Tory Gray Auditorium. 
and in the back there was the alumni missionary display, and it listed every single missionary that came out of Moody Bible Institute. And there were 21 names there that had asterisks next to them. And they weren't the ones who had become popular authors. They weren't the ones who had successful churches or who got their doctorate degrees. These 21 were the ones who were martyred for their faith. And why is that there? It's meant to show us that we participate in the same lineage of faithfulness. That as God gave them courage to endure suffering and even death, that God provided courage to these same people who walked down the same corridors, the same hallways, who sat in the same classrooms. He gave them courage. Will he not also give us courage to do the same? Their death was meant to slow the progress of the gospel, but instead it has inspired thousands of students to go forth in courage. We need to look at the lives of other Christians, don't we? Those we personally know in our lives, those we know prayerfully across the globe and those we know historically in biography. Seeing their lion-hearted lives keeps us from being shaped by our emotionally fragile culture. It shows the high potential of the Christian life and how low we actually live. So this is an encouraging advance, despite the intentions of Rome. And I, I, I summarize by saying this. What do we do then when after all our efforts, it seems like the gospel has not advanced? It seems like there's just an insurmountable obstacle. Here we see that we should be convinced that all obstacles and suffering which seem to slow down and discourage the church is precisely what advances the church. That God is not just resting on a lazy boy and resting his eyes. God is not being pushed back. God is working precisely in and through the adversity. What seems to restrain the gospel is actually advancing it. Well, then let's have much hope that God will advance the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know, Lord, that there are many agendas being forwarded, many lofty goals for people in this world, for even demonic forces, even our own sinful, sinful inclinations, Lord. But really, only one agenda will be advanced. Only one history will unfold, and is that what you have created, Lord, what you have dictated. 
And Father, if that is true, then nothing will stop you from advancing your truth. Your gospel will be proliferated throughout this world and it will accomplish what it's sent out to do, Lord. So I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be a people of discouragement or deflation. But, oh God, give us great hope and will that energize our efforts. God, let us see your providential hand in all things, Lord, even in the obstacles and even in the suffering. God, you are good and you are gracious, and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.